What job description would a marketing manager write if they wanted experimenters in their organization? I think it might go something like this. Title, marketing experimenter. Primary job description, making people aware of our products and persuading them to purchase them. You are perfect for this role if you are not confident in your ability to create digital campaigns that will connect with your prospects. You fail frequently, but with minimal impact. You do not consider yourself an intuitive copywriter. You do not have an intuitive sense of design. You are good at holding off helicopter executives. You ignore the expectations of others, unless they are prospects or customers. You can waste time strategically. You forget past victories easily. You are unmoved by cool agency designs. You've mastered the tools necessary to learn how to speak to our prospects. You're good at talking about data and sharing it with teammates. You must be good at asking questions. You know how to celebrate successful campaigns, and you know how to celebrate failures. If this is you, please apply immediately. Now, if any of these qualifications seem counterintuitive to you, don't worry. We are all going to have to learn to work with this kind of curious, disciplined, and creative person. Would you want people like this working in your organization? I suspect you might already have these kinds of people on your team. So I guess the real question is, would this person be delighted to be in your organization? Welcome to Intended Consequences, a podcast from Conversion Sciences. I'm Brian Massey, and I believe that anyone is capable of using behavioral science to predict the success of their marketing campaigns. Marketing magic is real, and I'll teach you how to harness it. This is where I think the data component becomes mission critical, because even the smartest marketer sometimes can cling to, well, I feel that it's this, and we can go, Okay, hang on, deep breath. What does the data tell us? Well, to help us understand these kinds of people, I've invited Barbara Kavnis to join me on this episode of Intended Consequences. Barbara is the CEO of Uncommon Logic, a digital marketing agency that you might be tempted to put in the category of search engine marketing. But this is really an organization that enables teams of talented people to do great things. Her team investigates digital marketing data to find the surprising facts that can solve their clients' toughest problems. Barbara is very purposeful in her approach to building teams, even though she encounters all of the same obstacles that we do. Learn how this former Duke University lacrosse player became the head of a marketing organization and how she fosters teamwork, curiosity, and creativity. I think this is at the crux of uh, those uh, listening that are leading teams, product development teams, product management teams, marketing teams. And that is, yes, I want my people um, experimenting. I want them looking into future technologies. I want them doing all of these things that keep us good at what we're doing and create new opportunities. But there is this little thing about productivity and keeping the customer happy and getting your day-to-day work done and the administrative stuff. How do you do it? And I'm I'm not accusing you of having figured it all out, but what are the things that you (laughs) would recommend or that have worked for you that give a little breathing room or um, allow people to spend some time just 
being curious, exploring new things. I'm chuckling because I, I grapple with this ongoingly, right? Because as you said, you, you got to keep the lights on, right? Bills need to be paid, et cetera. And so if you're not servicing clients, that doesn't happen. But I, I've literally built it into the culture of our company. You know, we have six core values and the, the last one is always learn and try new things. So we- So that's a core value. Yep. And, and I wouldn't say we're quite as sort of prescriptive, you know, at, at Google and some of the really big companies, they say, you know, 10% of every person's time can be allocated to exploration and their next great idea. Um, I'm not quite as, as I said, prescriptive about it, but we try to, you know, everything from sort of the very tactical, you know, analysis of workload to the providing, you know, fu- you know, funds to send people to conferences. You know, there are a lot of ways you can free up time and, and provide opportunities to learn and try new things. And so that that's a, a, a pretty uh, common discussion between me and my leadership team is, are, are we looking at the right things and, and providing enough opportunities for our people to do that? And, you know, it can be lunch and learns or sharing team learnings in the weekly team meetings are a lot of ways we have a really open space. So a lot of times I'll walk out and I'll hear people kind of, you know, from a couple of desks, you know, kind of rolling back and saying, hey, have you seen this thing or anybody heard about that? And, you know, five people walk around and, and start talking. So. I think there are a lot of sort of overt and subtle ways that you can nurture that mindset and create opportunities. Yeah, it's hard. I find that when I am, this might be a quirk of my personality, but when I am most uh, creative and uh, energetic and curious uh, is when I'm on a deadline. And it's then that I'm like, oh, you know, I bet if I put this over in this new application or if I learned a little bit about that API that I could accelerate this so that in all future times I'm doing it faster. But if I do that right now, then I'm either going to miss a deadline or the quality of my deliverable is going to be down because I'm spending a certain amount of time pursuing this new thing. I don't know what the answer is to, um, you know, how you codify that in an organization. I think experience is a big part of it. So, you know, I can get a lot done faster so that the impact is less. Um, but these are the sorts of things that I'm trying to tease out. Yeah, well, and I think, I mean, you're in a leadership role, so yours is a slightly different position. But the way I think about it is, you know, I try to invite people into my world, the wild and wacky world of Barbara, right? You know, so if, <laughs> Barbara land. Exactly. You know, if I'm doing a pitch call or, you know, if, if there's a particular issue that I'm, you know, just intending to talk to my directors about, but I think there's value in, in hearing from other team members. I invite people into those conversations. You know, I try to, I still participate uh, in training of all new employees and everyone in the organization does that. To me, part of living the value is not just, you can't just always learn and try new things and therefore focus on your own learning. You've got to be willing to be generous with what you know. And, and so you know, participating in training of others and, and asking people to join various conversations. I think, you know, when you're on a deadline, is there a way you could say, hey, I'm, I'm working on this thing. Anyone who wants to come and look over my shoulder, they'd probably jump at the chance because, as you say, you're a seasoned practitioner and have years on these people. We just had um, Diane Hamilton on who wrote The Curiosity Code, um, and it's a book that talks about the four things that limit our reduce our curiosity. And I, when you invite somebody in, you're creating an environment, which is one of the components um, in which they say, oh, wait a minute, if, I, if I'm curious and I spend some time, even if I'm spending my own time 
learning something or exploring something or checking into that new technology, there's a forum for me to be heard. And so uh, there is actually a map for bringing people into those discussions because it opens that up. And I, I think that's, I know also, I'm going to put you on the spot here that the listeners are going to be interested in what the other five core values are. Can you rattle those off for us? <laughs> you don't have to explain them, but we'd love to hear them. I could recite them in my sleep. I'm embarrassed to admit. So uh, number one is do what it takes to deliver excellent results. Number two is have the right attitude. Number three is do the right thing. Number four is communicate directly and honestly. And number five is do what you say you're going to do. And then obviously you've already heard six. Um, but the idea with the six, um, there, there's some tension amongst them, right? You know, you can't have a value of do what it takes to deliver excellent results because that could easily we don't care if you have to knock over old ladies and cheat and lie and you know steal. We just want you to win. So if you balance it with a do the right thing, you know you're you're communicating. Okay, hang on a second. You know, there is in fact a right way or a wrong way to deliver excellence. Have the right attitude doesn't say always be happy and cheerful. <laughs> you know it's be, be self aware and 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 sometimes that can include. You know I joke with the team like. You might have a two martini Tuesday, right? You have a rough day, a, a couple of tough client calls, whatever. And you might need to go for a run or go see your friends or go hug your kids or whatever. It's not about going, everything's fine. It's about being honest about, man, that was tough. I'm going to go lick my wounds a little, dust myself off. But we want to encourage, you know, A, ask for help. B, you know, do what you need to sort of rebound. But then C, you know, get back in there. And, you know, it's very interesting that you wrote these under a very strong first person inward looking. This is about an individual reading these doesn't think about like we as a team need to go do this. It's all about I need to communicate directly and honestly. I need to have the right attitude. I need to, to do what I say I'm going to do. I think this is a great format. This is certainly very accessible. So many core values end up being like mission statements where uh, they're more of a, a, a PR statement than a how do I navigate the culture of this world. Now, I want to drill in on something. For years, we have been trying to figure out a way to work with you, to partner up. Um, your ability to bring quality traffic is exactly what we need to maximize conversion rates. And how could this story not be magical to um, all of our clients? And yet, the two decisions seem to be completely separate. So, You've continued to invest in it. Talk to me about what you're learning about why when someone's thinking about, oh, we need more traffic, they just seem to not be willing to invest in turning more of that traffic into customers and leads and sales and vice versa. When someone's talking to us about conversion optimization, they, they feel like they've solved um, or not worried about their traffic generation problem. Are you continuing to see that trend? Yeah, for sure. And I, I think some of it is a product of you know, as you and I have talked about in the past, uh, so much in our business is, is sort of warm introductions, right? You know, so, uh, so-and-so complains to their buddy who says, hey, I've, I've got a guy or a gal in my case, right? And, and typically that complaint is specific to something that we do, right? You know, and, and we, our roots are in paid search and SEO. So that's sort of the top of mind things that people think of when they think of uncommon logic. And I suspect it's the same for you guys. You know, they they, you guys are the conversion optimization guys, you know, and, and I think um, one of the things that we work really hard to build with our clients is 
partnership that goes beyond just executing on a set of tactical objectives. And, and the ones where we're able to move into what I would call sort of strategic advisor, you know, that's an often used phrase. That's a lot of times when the door opens for us to say, hey, you know, your traffic would convert even better if dot, dot, dot. And, and sometimes it's, it's not a CRO related thing. It's a, you know, you need to redesign your entire website or, you know, your sales team. And, you know, this is where the war between sales and marketing, I think, is sometimes not alive and well. That's a little bit of an overstatement, but it can still exist. Let's put it that way. Because, you know, as marketers, we don't necessarily spend a lot of time assessing, well, how well is sales working the leads? Are they working them based on the what they want to work or based on, you know, order of, of dispositioning? You know, there's a lot of things that go into, you know, going from traffic to close one business, right? And so I think once you move into strategic advisor role, you get to the, the field opens up in terms of the things that you can talk about with, with your client. And, and obviously, you have to temper that a little bit with what do you know the most about, right? You know, we, we are a marketing organization. And so while we could point to certain things that on the sales ops side, let's say, we are experts in how to run a sales organization, right? That's a, a bridge too far, I guess. But I think it goes back to the, the relationship that you have with the client. Yeah, and the, the long the long term clients are bringing you into or bringing us into those sorts of things. We will inevitably be invited in to look at what's going on with our paid search campaigns, and you know we're not going to be optimizing spends and and doing programmatic at display and and that sort of thing. But after a certain period of time, we've learned enough and get I guess pulled into that sort of thing. So it always comes back. So let, let's let's flip it around and say, so this sounds like a real opportunity for someone who's like, okay, we're going to go out and we're going to um, get our, our acquisition, our traffic acquisition processes in place, SEO, paid search, display. Those are the typical buckets that I put it in. And we're going to do this optimization process. Now, there are two pretty big, fairly hard things to do. How would you advise folks to, I guess, bucket that up and sell it. They wanted this advantage. That's a hard one, right? Because I've worked at quote, full service agencies, unquote, before. And um, we have expanded our suite of services, obviously, over the years, but we do it very carefully. Part of the reason for that is, and, and I have this debate all the time, man, if I had a nickel for every time. <laughs> you know, so, so there's sort of three schools of thought. There's the in-house team is the best way to do it. You know, my business is a unique snowflake. Therefore, I should not work with any external partners. You know, the school of thought of, heck yeah, agencies for sure, but I really want a one-stop shop. You know, my internal marketing team is small. They can't have 17 partners that they're trying to manage. Then the third school of thought is, I know, I know that what my business needs is best in class. And while I don't want 17 partners, I might be okay with three or four if I'm getting best in class. And so you know, typically where we live is in the third bucket, right? And I counsel clients, obviously, on sort of the pros and cons to each, and, and I talk about why my position is the third bucket is the best. But ultimately, it is, um, it's a business decision, right? And there's so many things, everything from internal resources, you know, bodies to what's your budget to really where is that particular business feeling the greatest amount of pain? You know, it's, it's a complicated 
issue, I think. And, and there may not be a good answer. It may not have been a very fair question. But when we were talking <laughs> earlier, you were talking about that you think that there is a fundamental shift in the customers that you're seeing. Um, I don't know what time frame over which this has happened, but talk a little bit about that and how they're sophisticated. We can't have all these tools and all this data without businesses moving along. And obviously, uh, this podcast is completely dedicated towards accelerating that because uh, everything gets better, I think. So what have you seen in terms of the shifting sophistication or, or orientation of customers? Sure. And I actually think it dovetails off what we were just talking about around these three buckets. So gone are the days of the unsophisticated digital marketer. And, and that's not 100% of the time. But the vast majority of, of the clients, at least that we serve, are very sophisticated marketers themselves. So they can spot a fake from about a mile away. And they also have, have strong opinions about what are the right solutions for their business. And this is where I think the data component becomes mission critical because even the smartest marketer sometimes can cling to, well, I feel that it's this. And we can go, okay, hang on, deep breath. What does the data tell us? Because I get it, you hate the color blue, but the data is saying that 92% of your customers love the color blue. So you want to be right or you want to be rich? Even the smartest of us are carrying around these crazy things called brains that have all these <laughs> shortcuts that they're just, just to manage the world have all these shortcuts, but that don't serve marketing often. Very true. Very true. And, um, and so this is where we really try to, to remove any um, subjectivity from, from our conversations and, and really try to make it entirely objective, entirely based on the data. Of course, with considering nuances to businesses, to customers, to, you know, time of year, I mean, whatever other, you know, you can't do digital marketing in a vacuum. It's, it's not possible. But at the end of the day, if you do have the right data, the right systems, you know, talking to one another, et cetera, you ought to be able to come to the right conclusions. And then, of course, this is where you guys come in, test. That's it. That's the beauty is it's not hard to test anymore. There's a zillion platforms and different types of tests you can run. And, you know, so when in doubt, test. That may be at the heart of why conversion optimization and traffic generation or what you do in terms of uh, helping qualified folks find companies in all of its all of its different uh, digital advertising ways is that there's always this of course of course we want to make decisions subjectively of course we want to use data to drive our decisions of course we want to understand what our visitors want but well it's but we just missed our last quarter's goals and oh my god the ceo's breathing down my neck and, da, 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 da. and you know that's when it's like ooh okay exactly all that and it's also, we also want to be creative and we want to take risks. And so there's this kind of, I think with, with our customers, there's this kind of fear that we're going to put them in a box. And of course, after they've worked with us for a while, they're like, oh my God, we can try so many things. I've never been so creative in my life. <laughs> uh, but I think, magic. I think your business is seen as more of a creative, like we've got to get creative with the words and you've got PhD linguists on staff and things like that, that are, you know, going to figure out how to assemble the right queries and go after those and own those. And it's, it's a little bit more like lacrosse. It's get a big stick and go after the competition sort of a thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely think there's some truth to that. Um, 
Certainly when it comes to search, whether it's paid or organic, the, the playing field is, unless you are a category creator, which best of luck, I hope you have tens of millions of dollars, you know, you are, if you're a new business entering into a space, or if you're a business that's already competing within a space, it is more and more difficult to maintain a foothold with every passing day. And so, as you said, it, it requires a lot of creative thinking, um, a lot of agility, and, and, and there's always tension between statistically significant data and, okay, that thing's been in play long enough, we got to try something else. And, and so, you know, part of our job is, is to, to manage that tension, you know, for and with our clients and, and counsel them appropriately. And, you know, to be honest, we, we don't want to be in a silo. You know, we, we want to know who's doing the web design and development. We want to partner with whoever the conversion optimization resource is. We want to, you know, be in close touch with the public relations team, right? Because it, it all affects each other. Takes a brave soul to break down silos in some, you know, legacy organizations. Yeah, I was gonna. Not always, not always easy either. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and even more, even harder from the outside. Um, I, and actually, I've um, I've been gratified by the uh, ability of data to do some of those things in, in organizations that we've been in. We don't set out to go in and bust silos, but um, I think it's the reason, it ends up happening. Yes, it's the reason I'm sitting in front of this microphone week after week because um, there is a transformation that happens. I was going to kind of turn the focus on you. Uh, one of the best ways to lead, obviously, is to set a good example. So looking at that sixth pillar, learn and try new things, what do you do to let yourself learn and try new things? Is there anything purposeful that you do or even times that you find yourself letting go so you can play? <laughs> But, well, I have two toddlers, so there's not so much in the world of free time oh these days. However, <laughs> however, um, honestly, you know, I'm a people person. It's, it's why sports, right? I always played team sports, and I love that we are a close team here at Uncommon Logic, right? You know, team is is what drives me. So, honestly, my greatest source of learning is is people, and that's people, you know, here in in the office, that people out in the world, you know, friends, family other organizations where I, you know, volunteer, things like that. So I, I sort of, I guess you could say I'm a, a student of the school of life and the school of people. I'm, I'm very picky about the people that we hire. So every person in this building is smarter than I am and that's by design. So it is absolutely so much fun to sit around a table and, and talk through an issue with, with my team because how they think about things, the issues they point out, the things they press on or advocate for. It's interesting, it's inspiring, inspiring, it's learning filled. I mean, I love those moments. Now that is that is a very interesting, I've not heard that before, but obviously we've all heard that you are as successful as those you surround yourself with. But if, if I want to get better, rather than just set aside time for me to go and learn, surround yourself with, with people who are going to spark those ideas. That's, that's new to me. Thank you for that. Sure. I mean, I honestly think the biggest mistake a leader can make is being threatened by those beneath them. I, you know, at a certain point in your life, you have to sort of accept what you're good at and what you're not. And, and if there are particular things you want to get better at, as I said earlier, you know, put your shoulder to the plow and work hard. But you know, you also get to a point where you, you just sort of accept yourself 
And, and um, I, can, I think that can be really freeing because then you can look at someone who's, you know, 5, 10, 15 years younger than you and go, holy moly, that person has a jet pack on their back and I, I just want to be in their orbit. I want to nurture their development. I want to encourage them to build new muscles. And, you know, we have a lot of young people on our team, obviously, because young company, young industry, et cetera. And, and so they're sort of still finding their way when it comes to maximizing their potential. Um, you know, it, it always comes back to sports for me, right? You know, I, I love also being a coach. I love pushing my team. Some of my favorite success stories of people here are people who were insanely uncomfortable, did not think they could achieve something. And we said, nope, we won't accept that. You absolutely can. We're behind you all the way go run through that wall. You can absolutely do it. And the ones that do it, I mean, man, the, the light in their eye, the, the way it transforms them, the impact they have on their clients and their teammates, it is so inspiring and exciting to, to watch and to, to try to help facilitate. Yeah, and, and we see that same thing with our team here. They, um, the reason people stay with us for a long time is not because we pay good salaries, but they're learning stuff that there are a few agencies uh, that can teach them these sorts of things. Well, and they're valued, right? You, you make it a point to acknowledge their contributions, to reward their efforts, to make it a big deal in front of their colleagues. And, you know, I'm not saying throw a ticker tape parade every day or anything, but, you know, when someone puts in a Herculean effort, especially coming from senior leadership, I think going out of your way to say, hey, you guys, did everybody notice so-and-so? Because she's kicking some serious rear over here, you know, like, I'm so, it's so high five. Let's touch on that question of uh, motivation. Well, one of the components of, of our compensation plan is that the conversion scientists who are the, the point person for all of our customers um, actually do make um, a bonus or a commission on the amount of business that they're managing. And it's, they, they don't do any sales or, or they're not doing business development, but it's a recognition or a motivation, however you want to look at it, that they're doing good work and con clients are continuing to work with us month after month, continuing to, re to renew with us, then it's the reward or the motivation for that. And I was, when we first did that, I was very skeptical because I'm from the camp that says, well, money is great, but people are going to be more motivated by, um, you know, Daniel Pink's theory that for this kind of work, it's, it's more, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Broca's area has thrown this little word out of my brain right now. The intangibles <laughs> is what I'm looking for. Intangible rewards. What do you think? Because well, this is a big deal in sales where it's all about the commission. Yeah. And what do you think? Yeah. I, I, so I think there's two parts to that. I think you begin with the nurturing of the intangibles, meaning you build a culture that, that is rooted in something real, right? So for us, it's our six core values you acknowledge and you, you point to when people live out those values. I mean, our twice yearly performance reviews, you get a grade on each of the values, compensation is tied to them, et cetera. So I, I think you start there and, and, and what you demonstrate is consistency. And, and you asked about, you know, what I, I try to do as a leader, you got to lead by example, right? So if I screw up and don't do what I say I was going to do, there it's followed by an apology to whomever I owe it. I wasn't leading, right? So I think you have to start there. One other really important piece is I think you got to hire people who are self-motivated and who are self-aware because, you know, all the great culture in the world, 
you know, at the end of the day, these are adults and, and everyone chooses how they want to participate and engage. But I think once you've kind of taken care of all of those things, then it's about, you know, we're all a team, we're in this together. And, and you know, agency life is, is every interview I sit and I say, you know, hey, candidate, do you like roller coasters? <laughs> because this is going to be a roller coaster. And, and it's not, we're not intentionally trying to make things dramatic. It just, it's, it's, there's ebb and flows, there's fire drills, it just it happens in agency life. So imagine that's the sort of, you're trying to nurture this really strong bond between the team rooted in clearly, you know, set expectations and culture. And then you're asking them to like stay late sometimes, work on weekends, like work their tails off. Absolutely, you should reward that. If you have a healthy culture, a healthy organization and the right people, uh, you know, all the motivations are going to work. When you get back to the office, take a look at your workday and just write down the top five things that you do in your role. Then for each of those roles, rate yourself on a simple experimentation scale. In those roles in which you are the initiator of experimentation, give yourself a three. These are the roles in which you often say, let's study that, or who could we survey, or do we have any history to look at? Now for those roles in which you are a preventer of experimentation, give yourself a one. This is not a bad thing. We need people on our teams to help us focus our experimenters. Uh, this is like the control rods in a nuclear plant. Yes, they slow down the activity, but without them, the entire thing goes crazy and explodes. And for those roles in which you're not sure, give yourself a two. In which of these roles do you find yourself most satisfied? Which are you most frustrated? And is there a pattern, a correlation to your ability or willingness to rate yourself high on the experimentation scale? I'm gonna leave you to decide what this simple exercise means for you or for your team. That's all for now, scientists. <laughs>